Binge Mode is presented by Bud Light. Bud Light. It's all about bringing friends together. And we're wondering which unlikely pairs will team up this season with so many old and new friends coming together. For example, this episode we saw Tyrion, Jamie, Davos, Brienne, Pod, and Tormund mm. sucking down a horn of something good, all chilling in the Great Hall, singing songs, trading stories, and, you know, just like casually knighting people. Tormund didn't want to swap the giant's milk for wine, but for Bud Light. Mm. Maybe. Bud Light is reminding you to enjoy responsibly 21 and up. Your Grace, we must warn you. Binge mode contains adult content. That's impossible. I wish it were. Who told you this? Bran. He saw it. He saw it? And Samwell confirmed it. He read about the adult content of the Citadel without even knowing what it meant. One more warning, Your Grace. Binge mode contains spoilers. Doesn't seem strange to you? It's true, Danny. I know it is. And now, binge mode. In the name of the warrior, I charge you to be brave. In the name of the father, I charge you to be just. In the name of the mother, I charge you to defend the innocent. Arise, Brienne of Tarth, a knight of the Seven Kingdoms. Binge Mode Game of Thrones. Oh, yes. Proudly a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Allie Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. Uh, what a great website. It's great. Joining me today, now that he's finished boasting about suckling at a giantess's teeth for three months. Builds strong teeth and bones. John should have tried it. Maybe he would have <laughs> sprouted up a little bit. It's Ringer Senior Creative, your maester, Jason Concepcion. Man, she thought I was a baby. That's how I got so strong. <laughs> We've been drinking our giant's milk here at Benjamin Game of Thrones. Whether or not you guzzled with us during our original 67-episode run, we're thrilled that you're here now, little crow. And we hope that you subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, to just Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And please rate and review us. <laughs> Seven-pointed star for reading. Five stars for Binge Road Reviews. Also, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore, and join our Facebook group, which is just for Binge Mode fans and which is an excellent place to help Grey Worm and Miss Sandy plan their beach vacation at beautiful Nav. I bought us a couple of tickets and booked them. It's one way, not insured, non-refundable, but I think it's going to be fine, Missy. It's going to be great. What could go wrong? What could go what could wrong? Go wrong? And please head to TheRinger.com slash shop. Check out our brand new binge mode merch, including not even a maester, protect ghosts, and knights of summer tees, binge logo dad hats, and a new crew neck sweatshirt. Ideal for an overnight stay in the godswood. 
I need everyone, everyone listening to wear their Protect Ghost shirts this week. And drum roll, please. We're thrilled to announce we'll be attending the third annual Con of Thrones. Yes. Which is coming to Nashville, Tennessee this summer, July 12th to 14th. Celebrity guests include Nikolai Kostor Waldau, who plays Jamie Lannister, and John Bradley, who plays Samuel Tarley, the, Amazing. Er- the eraser of Gilly from history, with more coming soon. Full weekend day passes and special Valerian passes are available now at conofthrones.net. So get your passes now and join us. We cannot wait. It's going to be great. Last time on Binge Mode, we explored how family ties shaped the season eight premiere Game of Thrones. And today, we're diving deep. deep. Into the second episode of season eight. After you listen to this, be sure to check out all of the other Thrones offerings on various ringer platforms, including Talk to Thrones with us and Chris Ryan live on Twitter right after the East Coast airing of Game of Thrones on Sunday nights, Ask the Maester, and Ask the Maester live on Tuesdays, Zach Graham and Riley McAtee's pre-capitals preview pod every Friday, and so much more. We love covering Game of Thrones here at the ringer. As always, speculation and spoiler warning, we will be going deep on details from the show and the books alike from this episode and this season and all that came before it. Mm. So fuck tradition. Really hard. <laughs> because it's time to break down season eight, episode two, the absolutely beautiful A Night of the Seven Kingdoms. Mal, either you knew the plot points were lying and let me believe otherwise, or you didn't know at all, which makes you either a traitor or a fool. So let's erase any confusion by offering up a brief refresher on what actually happened in the second episode of season eight by taking a quick trip down our very own King's Road. In Winterfell, where we will spend the entire episode. Yes. We open in the Great Hall. Jaime Lannister stands in front of Queen Daenerys, Sansa, Jon, and everyone. Basically everyone. To answer for killing Danny's father, the Mad King, and various other crimes. He tells them that he's at Winterfell to fight for the living and also shares another nugget. Uh, Cersei is not, in fact, sending the troops that she promised to Tyrion. Tyrion's job, and perhaps more, is hanging by a thread. Brienne speaks for Jamie, telling of how he saved her from rape at the cost of his own hand. The appeal sways Sansa, who agrees to let him stay. Jon concurs and sweeps from the hall without meeting Danny's eye. In the Godswood, Jamie goes to see Bran to apologize for pushing him out of a tower window all those years ago. Seems like it's going to be a tough conversation, but Bran is the three-eyed raven now, as he's happy to tell anyone and everyone, and his concerns are beyond human ones. In the yard and outside the walls, Jamie and Tyrion reconnect. Jamie goes to see Brienne, who's drilling troops. He asks to serve under her command, and she nods. Beautiful. Beric, Tormund, and Ed arrive. They bring tidings of the Army of the Dead. Jon asks how long the defenders of Winterfell have. The Night King's forces will be on them before the sun comes up the following day. So it's probably time to start talking about the plan, finally. (laughs) Inside the castle, Jorah advocates for Tyrion to Danny, And on his advice, Danny also visits Sansa to try and smooth things over with the Northerners. Things go pretty well. They're holding hands and stuff right until the subject of Northern independence is raised. The meeting is interrupted when Sansa is summoned to meet Theon Greyjoy. She embraces him. He tells Danny that Yara has gone to claim the Iron Islands in her name. John, Danny, and the key leaders, including Alice Karstark. Great look Man, for my girl Alice in, in every shot here in the Le- War Council. Leader of, leader of House Karstark. Get her in there. They are well-armed, but the odds are still against them, unless they can lure the Night King into the open and strike 
him down. Bran has great news for the assembled and for every watcher of this show who's been wondering what the Night King is after. He assures them that the Night King will show himself because his goal is to get to Bran, to take down the Three-Eyed Raven. A plan is hatched. Bran, guarded by Theon and the Ironborn, will be used as bait for the Night King in the Godswood. Danny and her dragons will provide aerial cover. Everyone else will just hold on for as long as they can. In the Great Hall, Tyrion and Jaime are joined by Davos, Brienne and Podrick, and finally Torment. They're all seeking warmth and solace on the eve of battle. After some truly iconic boasting and storytelling, Torment exclaims surprise that Brienne is not a knight. And so, Jaime knights her, and she rises. Sir Brienne of Darth, a knight of the Seven Kingdoms. After much flirting, Gendry finally delivers Arya's spear, and then she takes a spear of her own. Mm-hmm. Riding Gendry off to a deep slumber. Gendry might sleep through the battle. She wore him out. She wore him out. <laughs> My dude was tuckered. I hope he set an alarm. <laughs> He's definitely sleeping through that thing. Out in the yard, Sam delivers Heartsbane, the ancestral sword of House Tarly, to Jorah Mormont. Jorah promises to use it in the memory of his father, Gior. Handsome. Jorah's handsome. Sure. Gior, too. Gior yeah, is great. Great looking. Great. Good yeah. looking family. In the crypts, John finally tells Danny who he is, but the talk is interrupted by Warhorns. The army of the dead is here. But at least so is Ghost for like a second. You looked cute. You look tiny. Yeah. Jason, you won't be able to help us in this podcast if I let them murder you first. What about afterwards? How do you know there isn't afterwards? And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's cut right to the core of it by sticking it with the pointy end. The defining theme of this episode is embracing life in the face of death. There's only one place to start for this episode, really. And that's with Brienne and Jamie, because in many ways, this is their episode. This episode is one of our favorite Game of Thrones episodes ever. A true instant classic. And the heart of the reason why is something that Brian Cogman, who wrote this episode, said on the Game Revealed feature that you can watch for the episode. He said, what I really wanted that episode to be was a love letter to the characters because I love them so much. And that is really something you can feel when you're watching it. That love is present throughout every scene of this, every look and every whisper, every shared drink, every shared song, every tap of the sword on a shoulder. Nearly every character in the episode benefits from that grace and that sincere appreciation, but no characters benefit from it more than Jamie and Brienne, both as individuals and as a duo. And the relationship between Jamie and Brienne is one of the primary heartbeats of Game of Thrones. And this episode honors their evolution in really deeply moving, beautiful fashion. It is the kind of attentive, deliberate, gentle storytelling that at once makes us less willing than ever to say goodbye to these characters because it basks in all of the reasons that we love them as fiercely as we do and don't want this story to end and makes us slightly more ready to part with them than we otherwise would be because this feels like the kind of farewell, the kind of love letter that we ourselves would have wanted to give them. The episode opens with Jamie on trial in front of Danny, Sansa, John, and all the lords and ladies of Winterfell and the North and the Vale, and he's asked to account for his presence here in the North, for his presence in the absence of the troops that Cersei promised, 
and for his past misdeeds, at least the ones that they know about. And Danny is leading the attack, which makes sense, of course, because Jamie did famously slay her father. When I was a child, she says, my brother would tell me a bedtime story about the man who murdered our father, who stabbed him in the back, cut his throat, who sat down on the Iron Throne and watched as his blood poured onto the floor. He told me other stories as well about all the things we do to that man once we took back the Seven Kingdoms and had him in our grasp. The pursuit of justice is one of Game of Thrones' core themes, and Danny has often been the chief embodiment of that pursuit, grappling with the cost of seeking it and the many forms it takes. And sometimes her enemies have judged her version of it, even feared it. Sometimes her advisors have. But there's something haunting about hearing Danny quote her brother, Viserys, who yep. tormented her, who abused her, and whom she viewed as unworthy of the power he sought. The dexterity of this sequence allows us to identify the warnings it's giving us about Danny while still maintaining the primary focus on Jamie. Her threat reminds us of who, to so many in the realm, Jamie has long been and still is the Kingslayer, the Oathbreaker, the man without honor. Danny asks about Cersei's pledge to bring her armies north. I don't see an army, she says, adding cruelly. I see one man with one hand. It appears your sister lied to me. Remember, to many, including John and Bran, this is about the war against the Night King and his army of the dead. None of these squabbles matter. But to Danny, though, this turn of events means vulnerability, plus the possibility that her advisors have lied to her. More on this later. She pledged to send her troops north with the understanding that she and Cersei would cease hostilities until the living beat the dead. Jamie's reveal isn't just a blow to the North's forces, it's a threat to Danny's crown. Are Cersei and Euron taking back Dragonstone and Castle Rock right now while Danny sits and speaks to her father's killer? Jamie says, hey, listen, Cersei lied to me as well. He tells the assembled about the Golden Company. Even if we defeat the dead, he tells them, she'll have more than enough to destroy the survivors. We? Danny asks. Jamie says, I promise to fight for the living. I intend to keep that promise. Jamie has a purpose a clarifying guiding principle. He wants to help the living, yes, but he also wants to honor his word because he already said that he would help the living. He once told Tywin that he didn't care what people thought of him, and Tywin's reply was that that was what Jamie wanted them to think. And we saw when he confessed the truth of the Mad King's death to Brienne in the tub at Harrenhal how the words that so many wielded against him for so long had actually wounded him deeply. He asked, by what right does the wolf judge the lion? But we saw in the rest of that exchange at Harrenhal how that judgment had shaped his life. And here, now, they're literally judging him. And he's putting his fate in their hands. Tyrion's efforts to defend Jaime predictably solicit rage from Danny, but no empathy. While Sansa's initial stance is that Jaime, who attacked Ned in the streets, cannot be trusted. And Jamie didn't just attack Ned. He murdered Jory, knife through the eye, don't forget. And his men slaughtered many of Ned's. Like the Kingslayer tale that Danny opened these proceedings with, Jamie, he did do this thing. He did do what they're accusing him of. Just not for the reasons that they think and that they fully understand. And of course, they haven't even mentioned what he did to Bran, nor will they, as it turns out, because Bran has not told them nor his murder of Sir Alton, his cousin, and Torrin Karstark in order to flee imprisonment. All of this is a reminder of what Cersei brought out in him and what he easily could have sunk back into. But they're painting the picture that the realm at large has of Jaime. They don't know anything about him beyond the things that they're saying out loud. They haven't borne witness as we have to his evolution. Someone has, though. Brienne. 
Jamie defends himself saying that he's not going to apologize. We were at war. Everything I did, I did for my house and my family. I'd do it all again. It's a bold choice, but really is only one because pure contrition would probably play as a lie. He needs to express remorse and a desire to move on while also standing by the things he did at the time. Otherwise, he's confessing to being exactly who they think he is. After all, any of them might plausibly have acted in similar fashion had their family member been arrested by another house as Tyrion was by Cat Stark. He has to show that he had a reason even then, even at what people believe to be his worst. Helpfully, the boy he paralyzed happens to be the all-seeing, all-knowing, three-eyed raven who casts his human identity aside in service to a higher pursuit. The things we do for love, Bran says, both signaling to Jamie that he has power over him, he understands what he did, and signaling to the room, which doesn't understand the context that there is some validity to Jamie's claim. Mm-hmm. Bran quoted someone to their face last season, too, when he said, Chaos is a ladder to Littlefinger after Peter handed over the cat's paw blade. But he's not trying to catch Jamie here. He's supporting him, at least in a fashion. Remember that Bran didn't remember what happened to him after the fall, and this indicates he's returned to this event and found clarity just as the, quote, waiting for an old friend line in the season premiere did. In response to this, Jamie looks at Bran with an expression containing nearly a decade's worth of meaning of guilt, of shock. He doesn't know if Bran is about to reveal the truth, but he doesn't have long to contemplate it before Danny asks why he has decided to abandon his house and family now if those are the forces he's always acted to serve. Because this goes beyond loyalty, this is about survival, he says, looking at Brienne as he parrots the words she spoke to him in the season seven finale in the Dragon Pit as they discuss the impossibly daunting task ahead. Oh, fuck loyalty, Brienne urged then. This goes beyond houses and honor and oaths. Loyalty, of course, has always been paramount to Brienne. Her words spoke to the unique urgency of the threat at hand. But in his own way, Jamie has always been about loyalty, too. He's only mm-hmm. been with one woman, Cersei. Mm-hmm. He's always served his house. That's essentially what he's explaining here. It may not be a form of loyalty people recognize, but it's loyalty all the same. Brienne, recognizing that he is repeating the sentiment that she shared with him, stands up and addresses the head table. You don't know me well, Your Grace, but I know Sir Jamie. Think of how many times we've seen Brienne in a setting like this, some sort of mass gathering of power players in a courtyard or a hall or an arena. She's almost always been silent. Speaking up like this is not in her nature. Standing to do this for Jamie took a lot of courage for Brienne, but she's moved to act because of her love for him and her desire to protect him, as she has before and as he has done for her. His expression when she stands to defend him and says his name is the stuff of songs. Mm-hmm. Recall when Jamie collapsed in the tub at Heron Hall and Bran shouted out for help for the Kingslayer. What did he say in those final breaths? Jamie, my name is Jamie. And he's been Sir Jamie to her ever since, not the Kingslayer, a person, not a nasty moniker that misses so much of the man behind it, a knight, a man worthy of the honorific bestowed upon so few. He is a man of honor, Brian says here. The breakthrough that they achieved together, the utter transformation of her view of who he is, is now being shared with the entire world. Brian, to whom honors the chief guiding principle in life, is vouching on the eve of the apocalypse for a man that few people in the hall and really the world believe possesses a shred of it. She knows the true Jamie. And in what could be her final hours— She's choosing to share that proudly. She tells them about being Jamie's captor, falling prisoner, and how he saved her from Locke's men when they tried to assault her and lost his hand because of it, she says. 
turning the hand Danny recently used to diminish Jamie into a token of his own heroism. And she tells Sansa that without Jamie, she wouldn't be alive. Brienne was able to honor her pledge to keep fighting for Sansa because Jamie also kept his word. Quote, he armed me, armored me, and sent me to find you and bring you home because he'd sworn an oath to your mother. Recall Jamie's infamous line to Kat in season two. So many vows. They make you swear and swear. Defend the king, obey the king, obey your father, protect the innocent, defend the weak. But what if your father despises the king and what if the king massacres the innocent? It's too much. No matter what you do, you're forsaking one vow or another. He seemed to be mocking the idea of oaths there, but really he was lamenting the real difficulty in upholding Mm -hmm. them in a world that pits one's best impulses against each other. Mm-hmm. Now Brienne is showing everyone in the room that Jamie does honor his oath, and we have to wonder why Brienne chose not to speak up about Jamie's actions during the sack of King's Landing. It was the realization that Jamie had acted as a true knight, protecting thousands of innocents when he slew the Mad King before his order to detonate the wildfire could be carried out. I think there are two reasons. One, Danny? Danny's not going to exactly soften up if— they turn to just saying, well, actually, your father was even more of a madman than people realize. And also, I think just out of respect for that being Jamie's secret to share. Just my take. It's a good question, though. He kept his word to Kat, kept his word to Brienne. He protected someone in need. You vouch for him, Sansa asks? I do. You'd fight beside him? I would, Brienne says. And the camera zooms in on Jamie's face as Brienne does so. It's the same expression he carried when she named the sword he'd gifted her Oathkeeper, an almost impossible gratitude that anyone could see the goodness in him and believe in him this much. This is all he's ever wanted, not for his father to bully him into upholding some ideal of Lannister legacy, not for the masses to call him Kinslayer and lament the actions that they don't understand, not for Cersei to belittle him and manipulate him into becoming his worst self. Brienne and Jamie love each other, even though they haven't said it or acted on it in a way that many would, but this is a way of showing it. Sansa casts her ruin. She trusts Brienne. And if Brienne trusts Jamie, Sansa does too. What a testament to the sway yeah. Brienne holds over those who know her. True. Here's my one counter to Jamie's secret to share. This is like his life literally on the line. Maybe she's saving it and then realizes she doesn't need to use it. Right. I think right here is kind <laughs> of like, you, I'd play it. Put all the cards out. Yeah, put all the cards out. Don't hold anything back. Go all in. I mean, it is Danny. She could literally just murder him at any moment. At any moment. Literally any moment. Established precedent. So why not play it here? And also, I think a good, you know, it would have been a good opportunity for Danny to be like, well, you know, who I'm not like? That guy. Yeah. And then Sam could have been like, hey, wait. Hey, guys, I'm just catching up on all of this. Are you sure? (laughs) Jamie, now safe from death by fire-breathing dragon, at least for the time being, seeks out Bran in private, finding him in the Winterfell Godswood in front of the Weirwood Tree. And it is jarring but incredible to see Jamie in this overtly northern place. Juxtaposing him against the Heart Tree really cements, almost in a way more than his interrogation, that he's really here. He's really doing this. He's really picking them over Cersei. Jamie looks at Bran and sighs, and it's clear that he's really taking in the sight of what he did, of how his choice, because... To be clear, we blame Cersei a lot and mm-hmm. talk about her influence. Jamie had agency, and he still pushed Bran. So how that choice changed this boy's life, and as Bran is about to say, the entire world. Bran being at peace with his identity as a three-eyed raven and the path that brought him there doesn't change the fact that Jamie did something unspeakable. And he shakes his head like he knows that the words he's saying aren't enough, but he says them anyway because there's not a lot else he can do. I'm sorry for what I did to you, he says. And he means it. Though as Bran says, you weren't sorry then. You were protecting your family. Mm -hmm. 
Jamie tells him he's not that person anymore. When Jamie asks if Bran's going to reveal the truth later on, should they all escape the battle? And Bran says, how do you know there isn't afterwards? It is so deeply unnerving, not only in terms of considering the stakes of the battle for Jamie and for everyone else, but existentially. And the idea of afterward is present throughout the entire episode, both as a carrot and kind of as a taunt, reminding everyone what they're working to preserve and try to reach, but also what they might never see. Jamie and Tyrion cross paths in the courtyard, back from their respective mea culpas and sharing the music. Here we are a moment as the Northmen glower and literally spit at the men that embody everything that they have hated for so many years. Actual spitting. Yes. <laughs> They're literally lions in the wolf's den. In a moment like this, away from people whose intentions we know and understand, surrounded by wild cards, we have to admire the courage it takes for them to stand here like this. Tyrion tries to convince Jamie that Danny's the true queen, but Jamie notably is not buying it. And it's not because he's trying to protect Cersei's claim anymore. He saw the madness in her eyes. And he knows better than almost anyone what that madness looks like. It's why he stuck his sword into the king he had sworn to protect. The brothers briefly discuss the other Mad Queen, Cersei, and her pregnancy. She's always been good at using the truth to tell lies. I wouldn't be too hard on yourself. She's fooled me more than anybody. Tyrion stops and looks at Jaime, who says, What? She's never fooled you. You always knew exactly what she was, and you loved her anyway. This is astute, and it's important to keep in mind. Jaime deserves credit for choosing to leave and for doing the right thing, even though it wasn't the easy thing but he also chose to stay for too long. It's at once important to remember that he isn't perfect and is culpable and to admire how far he's come. As Tyrion's speaking about death and Cersei and the little ironies that life presents, Jamie wanders away, both Tyrion's mid-sentence, because he hears Brienne's voice, and he stands in the battlements and watches her training men in the yard with such sincere affection in his eyes. And some of the best acting in this episode plays out on people's faces. They're conveying a series worth of emotion in one glance. They're looking at each other, in other words, like we look at them. Jamie walks down to where she's watching Pod spar with a soldier as Grey Worm tests the defenses, and Brienne's smiling as she's watching Pod, clearly proud of how far he's come and her role in helping him get there, as she should be. Jamie walks up to her, and she greets him with real formality, but also honor. Sir Jamie, Lady Brienne, he says. And she looks faintly embarrassed. This is their first interaction, first time speaking since she saved him in the hall. And Jamie compliments Podrick, saying that he's come a long way. And Brienne says, he's all right, slipping right back into that reserved, gruff demeanor that belies the pride we saw on her face just a moment ago. And she starts to walk away from Jamie. And we can see what a struggle it is for her to process the feelings that she has for him. I'm sure you'll teach him, Jamie says, before noting that he's heard that she'll be commanding the left flank in battle. And after just a few minutes of small talk, Brienne asks what he's doing, what he's playing at, and she notes that they've never gone this long in a conversation without him insulting her. Not once, she says. You want me to insult you? No. Good. And they're both really flustered. And we see here, while they're arguably closer to each other at this point than to anyone else in the world, they still don't totally know how to navigate each other. Brienne, despite her sincere, warm feelings toward Jamie, still can't quite believe that he's here with her, that he's being kind to her. Her life experience has trained her to always expect the other nasty shoe to drop and to kick her when it does. After a moment of awkward silence, Jamie says, I came to Winterfell because then I'm not the fighter I used to be, but I'd be honored to serve under your command if you'll have me. Brienne 
shocked and emotional nods, but can't find the words. Think back to how Jamie in their early days together as captor and prisoner used to mock everything about Brienne, including mm-hmm. her prowess with the sword. When they finally came to blows Jamie in chains and decrepit, he begrudgingly acknowledged her skill. You're good. Graceless, but good. <laughs> in time, as their own shared trauma mounted and shared respect did as well, and as Jamie's own skills shifted following his mutilation, the begrudging nature melted away, and he saw and celebrated her worth in full. Jamie is prideful, at once arrogant. Recall what he once said to Kat, there are no men like me, only me. Mm-hmm. There aren't many. Any people alive he'd be willing to serve under? Mm-hmm. Even taking orders from his father came unnaturally to him when Jamie risked disownment to alienate Tywin and remain in the Kingsguard at the expense of his own inheritance. Brienne might be the only person alive Jamie would not only be willing to serve under, but would ask to serve under. He believes in her and in what she's done for him that much. Later on in the temporary calm of the night, the final moments of peace before the foe arrives, Jamie and Tyrion are sitting by the fire in the hall talking about their father and how they wish he could see them right now. Two Lannister sons facing death for Winterfell, for the North, for the people that Tywin waged war against. And in many ways, Tyrion and Jamie both wilted in Tywin and Cersei's shadow. And for better or worse, they're their own men now. And they're spending these precious moments reminding themselves and each other of that fact. Tyrion says that he remembers when they were first here at Winterfell. And of course, we remember it as well. You were a golden lion, he says. I was a drunken whoremonger. It was all so simple. It wasn't so simple, Jamie rightly replies. Mm-hmm. I was sleeping with my sister and you had one friend in the world who was sleeping with his sister. <laughs> this is a useful cue that even absent war or the threat of death incarnate, Life is always complicated. It's never easy for any of us. We all have our own reasons. Tyrion yearns for those long-ago days, or at least he thinks he does. Hmm. Of course I miss it, he says. Well, Jamie replies, my golden lion days are done. He really believes, really believes that he's a new person because he's actually committed to trying to be one. But looking forward also means looking backward. They're reminiscing. It's the most human of instincts when life and time and opportunity seem fleeting. They're playing back the tape. What went right? What went wrong? What was good? What wasn't good enough? They're not perfect, but they're taking the time to reflect and to lavish in the moments, even the painful ones, that define the course of their lives. Tyrion makes a toast. To the perils of self-betterment. And right then, Brienne walks in. Great timing. Jamie stands when she does and says, My lady. Tyrion, always observant, notices. Brienne sure says does. she didn't mean to interrupt. And Jamie pulls out a chair for Brienne. Chivalry. The true knight in pursuit of camaraderie <laughs> with Pod, Davos, and Tormund also in the room. Tyrion begins to list their achievements in combat. And when he calls Brienne Sir Brienne of Tarth while toasting her victory over the Hound, he then realizes his misstep in calling her Sir. And Tormund is baffled. She's not a Sir. You're not the knight. <laughs> Brienne explains that, hey, man, women can't be knights because, you know, tradition. Fuck tradition, Tormund <laughs> says. And we could not agree more. Yes. A lot of what they're about to fight boils down to on some level, even if they don't totally think about it in these particular terms, to banishing tradition, Uh fuck tradition, breaking the wheel, pursuing a type of unencumbered life like the free folk have. Brienne says, I I don't want to be a knight, averting her (laughs) eyes from Pod, who is like, yes, you do. What are you talking about? I love he gives her there. What are you talking about? (laughs) Of course, Brienne wants to be a knight. It's all she's ever wanted, to be seen for what's good in her. But saying that aloud means being vulnerable. Yep. And that means giving into what she's trying to avoid, the potential for more pain and rejection, for being told she's not good enough 
for being made to feel that she doesn't belong or being laughed at the way that she was all those years ago when Renly Baratheon saved her from mockery. Yep. Tormund says he's no king, but he'd knight her ten times over if he were. And Jamie, who has poured himself a drink and taking this all in, says any knight can make another knight. Mm -hmm. I'll prove it. This is when the chills really started coursing through me. Tyrion, Tormund, Pod, Davos, they're all watching. And Pod's joy is really particularly moving because the Pod-Brienne relationship is also very special. But this is a moment between Jamie and Brienne. If 100 people, 1,000 people, a million people were in the room, it wouldn't matter. It would not make a difference. It would still feel like it was just the two of them. Jamie pulls his sword and says, Kneel, Lady Brienne. And she sort of laughs. He says, Do you want to be a knight or not? And she looks at him almost disbelievingly. He says, kneel. And she then looks at Pot again, and he smiles his encouragement at her. And it's not permission. She doesn't need permission from him or from anyone. But it's love and respect and understanding passing between them. An acknowledgement of how much this means to her. Pod knows what's in her heart, and she values what's in his. And she rises and stares at Jamie for a long time before moving. Like, she can't be Mm -hmm. sure. And as you just alluded to, think of how many times she's been fooled before in her life. Think of the Brienne the Beauty episode from her youth and how the boys made a game of playing with her hopes and dreams before crushing them. And how Renly came to occupy such a special place in her heart because he was kind, because he tried to make her happy, because he acted, in other words, in a fashion like a knight, Mm -hmm. virtuous, compassionate, seeking to guard, seeking to protect. But though those insecurities shaped so much of Brienne's life and never left her, she trusts Jamie completely. And we see that here. She walks over to him and kneels, and everyone turns to watch. She looks at him with a mix of pride and terror, gratitude and fear. She once told Pod that nothing's more hateful than failing to protect the one you love. She's love lived by those words, and here she's trusting Jamie to do the same. He tightens his grip on his sword. <sighs> yeah. The sword that, like Oathkeeper, was melted down from the ancestral Stark sword ice. Mm-hmm. Brienne and Jamie carry two halves of that hole, and they're using them together here to continue to honor their pledge to Kat, to protect Sansa and Arya, to protect their word, Incredible. to protect life. And there's such poetry in that, yeah. such history, as he lifts the sword in his left hand because he lost his right to save Brienne from Locke. He places the blade on her shoulder and speaks. It's just Jamie and Brienne, utterly mesmerizing and magnetic. But it almost feels like we're intruding on this private moment, the thing that only they can share. In the name of the warrior, he whispers, I charge you to be brave. In the name of the father, I charge you to be just. In the name of the mother, I charge you to defend the innocent. Arise, Brienne of Tarth, a knight of the seven kingdoms. They're (sighs) looking into each other's eyes as he says the final words, the words that are at the heart of their shared mission and journey and relationship. For her, for him, for them together, this is the gift that they gave each other. Brienne saw Jamie as a true knight, and he saw her as one as well. The episode title, The Knight of the Seven Kingdoms, is for both of them. It speaks yeah. to Brienne, realizing a lifelong dream and embodying knighthood more fully than any other character in the story. And it also speaks to the version of Jamie that Brienne helped on Earth. Yes. Oathkeeper, man of honor. While so much of this story is about tearing down labels and stripping away the power of a name, the idea of knighthood means something to both of them. Oh, my God. Incredible. She stands and they look at each other, surrounded by nothing in that moment but their shared gratitude and admiration and love. And then the clapping begins and they snap to remembering that other people are there. Like they truly forgot that they weren't alone. And Tyrion shouts, Sir Brienne of Tarth, a knight of the seven kingdoms. 
And there are tears in Brienne's eyes and the purest smile on her face. And it would be an absolutely endless source of joy if it didn't also feel like a possible death sentence. This is her life's ambition, realized. And Jamie shared it with her. He didn't give it to her. No man, no person gave it to her. They grew together. She mm-hmm. earned it. It's a beautiful journey, fueled by empowerment and friendship and a reminder of the transformative power of someone else seeing you clearly, really believing in you. It is unmistakably an all-time Game of Thrones scene. Some people have labeled it fan service, given the mass investment in Jamie and Brienne as a couple and as individuals, but there is a huge difference between fan service, which implies something easy and forced, and what transpired here, which is Mm -hmm. a beautiful, fully earned culmination of their arc. And it's happening in the home of the family that gave them the oath that united them in the first place, the Starks. It is a reminder of the many forms that honor can take and the many paths that we can all take to finding understanding and what knighthood can look like and feel like and represent and mean. It's also a reminder that love takes many forms and manifests in many ways. Jamie and Brienne have traversed a continent together. They're different people than they were in the rowboat or even the bathtub at Heron Hall, the previous signature scene in their relationship, or on the grounds of the Red Keep or in the tents outside of River Run or in the Dragon Pit or anywhere. They're where and who they are because of their courage and conviction and belief in each other. Brianna Rose and Knight, Jamie is someone who gave a great gift to another person and felt the glow of that gratitude. And viewers, as the beneficiaries of bearing witness to one of the great relationships in the history of stories. Brianna's knighting isn't the only bit of majesty that inspires in Winterfell's great hall. Podrick's rendition of Jenny's song is beautiful. Gorgeous. A stroke of elegiac genius. It may foreshadow what's to come for John and Danny, given that it's about Jenny of Old Stones, a commoner who married Prince Duncan, leading him to face a choice between love and the throne and ultimately to renounce his claim, becoming the Prince of Dragonflies, or forbidden love with dire consequences for the realm. It also connects to the prince that was promised, carrying more massive endgame implications for John and Danny, the prime candidates to fulfill the prophecy. When a woods witch who most believed to be the ghost of High Heart, who requests to hear Jenny's song from Tom Sevenstrings, came to court with Jenny. She prophesied that the prince would be born from the line of Ares and Rayla, Jaehaerys' children, whom he then married, leading to Danny's birth and also Rhaegar's, and thus his son John's. The song also connects to Summerhall and the tragedy therein, which most believe stemmed from the attempt to hatch dragons and kill Duncan and so many others. Dragons, prophesized Targaryens, saviors, and children born of incest and forbidden love. Song choice was far from incidental. While the song is rich in illusions, it's also full of something else. And that is despair. Pod's rendition is aching and full of sadness and yearning for something lost. The ones she had lost and the ones she had found and the ones who had loved her the most. The ones when the Ghost of High Heart asked Tom to sing it in A Storm of Swords, Thoros pulls Arya away from the rendition, saying, quote, let her savor her song in peace. It is all she has left. Elsewhere, when Rob mentions the song, Kat says, we're all just songs in the end, if we are lucky. And these passages both speak to how grief and longing shape us. What a fitting choice for this night on the eve of what could be the end. Before Pod begins to sing, they're all gravitating toward warmth, the glow of the fire. 
but also what that represents. Gathering, companionship, comfort. When Brianna Pod entered and found Tyrion and Jamie sitting there, Tyrion said that they were looking for a place to contemplate your imminent death. You've come to the right place. And this creates a nice contrast to his if you want justice, you've come to the wrong place line to Oberyn back in season four. Now, like then, the prospect of death looms, but everything seemed hopeless before. Now, even though they're facing an army of magical ice beings and their legions of undead soldiers, there's some semblance of hope, surprisingly so. The difference is right there in the room. It's each other. They're not alone. If they die, as Tormund says elsewhere in the episode, at least they'll die together. When Davos entered the room, he said, what do we have here? And it's a good question. Certain pairs or trios in the room have connections, sure, but Jamie, Tyrion, Bran, Pod, Davos, and Tormund, that's an unlikely collection of people. They're united ultimately by something more powerful than shared history. They're united by a desire to cherish every moment that life has left to offer. They're sharing drinks and stories and seismic events in each other's lives, and when Pod's spine-tingling rendition of the song flows, each utterance of never wanted to leave— feels like a gift not only to those people in the room, but to us, the viewers. We don't want to leave this world either. We don't want to say goodbye to these people. That dread is exacerbated by the montage playing alongside the lyrics. We see Sam and Gilly and baby Sam in bed, the family that they both lacked for so long together at last. But for how much longer? Sienna and Sansa eating their soup outside, looking at each other with unexpected tenderness and trust and safety. Arya staring off into the distance as Gendry sleeps, thinking, perhaps, about all of the humanity she missed for so long. Grey Worm and Masande kissing passionately as the war preparation furiously unfolds around them. Jorah riding on his horse toward his potential doom. The song and the composition speak to closeness and acceptance and understanding. It feels like a send-off for so many of the characters that we cherish. A testament to the utterly human desire to want something good to last even if we know it can't. And now a break for a word from our sponsor. Today's episode of Binge Mode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Hiring used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy, and you only have to go to one place to get it done. ZipRecruiter.com slash binge. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over a hundred of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. Oh, with their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes, thousands, to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. This exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash binge. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash B-I-N-G-E. ZipRecruiter.com slash binge. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And now back to binge mode. Let's chat about Ariane Gendry. Sure. Who we ship hard. What an episode for the Garia shippers out there. And what a truly special episode for Arya, a cherished character who really seemed to be losing her way in season seven, or the show seemed to be losing its way with her, but has really rediscovered her essential essence this season, thanks to Arya rediscovering something else, her humanity. Everyone copes with the looming specter of the Army of the Dead's arrival in a different way, and it's fun to really see 
the different iterations of that for all of these different people. And Arya herself actually goes through phases in this episode. Initially, she's thinking practically. War means weapons, and she needs hers. So she visits Gendry in the forge to ask after the custom spear that she asked him to make her. She had a very detailed diagram and all, don't forget. (laughs) And business is booming all around her. If the living loses the battle to come, it will not be for a lack of dragon glass. It is everywhere. And Arya... They got a lot of it. A lot of it. Arya spots Gendry hammering the molten material and then cooling it, and it's this mirror image to her watching him heat and then cool a sword back in the yard at Harrenhal in season two. And that parallel is a snapshot-sized reminder of how much these two have shared, but also of how much they've both changed since they were last together before Melisandre took Gendry away in season three. And there's some nice eyebrow arching here paired with some, don't you have something better to do, flirting. And ample grime and sweat to make those muscles glisten. And we can see Arya's desire, but also her focus at this point. She asks when he's going to give her that spear. And he says he's prioritizing the few thousand (laughs) daggers and axes and weapons that he's making for the masses. And she not only tells him to prioritize hers, but to make it quote, stronger than this, mocking (laughs) the axe that she's holding in her hands. Classic, classic nagging strategy from a pickup (laughs) artist right here. Trying to lower the price, too. (laughs) And he grabs it back and slams it right into a block of wood and says it's plenty strong, thanks. And it is honestly a miracle, a miracle of willpower and television pacing that they don't stop and fuck right there. And they don't. Because first, they have to traverse the divide between expectations and reality. Mm-hmm. Gendry isn't even sure why she needs this. It's going to be safer in the crypts, you know, he says. Now, Gendry knows Arya a lot better than most. He's seen her out in the wild. He's escaped imprisonment with her. He's seen her work through challenges, challenge the Red Woman. But he doesn't know what she's suffered and what she's become since they parted. He doesn't right. know what she became. He doesn't know, as Brienne and the Hound said to each other at the end of season seven, the only one who needs protecting is the one who gets in Arya's way. Arya asks if he's going down in the crypts, and he's like, you know, I fought. I faced the army of the dead. You know, I did a little little fighting. You know, I don't brag about it. And I ran halfway across the continent right after. You want to I was told to run. How far have you run? I was told to run. Incredible endurance, except for later on in this episode. Um, (gasps) And it's true, he did. He's fought them. And then she follows up with, okay, what are they like? Trying uh-huh. to get like a scouting report yep. on these guys. Yep. And Gendry, in incredibly inarticulate fashion, says, bad, <laughs> really bad. Really bad, Arya says. And she wants to know, no, what do they look like? Mm-hmm. What do they smell like? How do they move? How hard are they to kill? She is thinking in terms of, I'm going to have to face these things. Really snapping into editor mode here? Yeah. Show, don't tell. Yeah. Killing means being merciless, but it means also being prepared. Yep. How can you beat what you don't understand? Gendry, who, like John, quote, is an blatant poet, does his best to capture the horror of the White Walkers. This is different, he says. This is death. You want to know what they're like? Death. That's what they're like. And Arya, of course, has seen her share of death, mm-hmm. barely escaping it from the moment that she stood in the crowd and pressed her head against Yorin's body as Joffrey called for her father's head. She trained to become a killer worshiping the many-faced god and referring to death as all of her fellow assassins did as the gift. For years, she's gone to bed every night whispering the names of the damned, the people that she intended to kill. 
She picks up here a dagger and then another and then another all made of dragon glass and she throws them, flicks them with this pinpoint precision into a beam across the forge. There's that great moment where you see the dude who's standing by the beam and he's He's like, like, whoa, what? (gasps) I'm standing here. I'm leaning here. I know death, she says. He's got many faces. This is an overt reference to her time in Bravos, but also a reminder that she isn't that person anymore. She left no one, or at least the pursuit of fully becoming no one, behind when she retrieved the sword that John had given her, Needle, said her real name aloud, and returned home to fight for her family. But fighting for family still means fighting. I look forward to seeing this one, she finishes. And Gendry chuckles appreciatively as Arya walks away, asking one more time, my weapon? Yeah, I'll get right on it, he says. <clears throat> Arya believes in her skill. Arya knows that her experiences have shaped her. She's dancing on the line here between hubris, because the Night King is not Maren Trant or Walder Frey or the Waif, right? But it would have been easy for her to languish in that statement, the one that is so intensely poetic and ominous that it opens the season eight trailer, could have easily shaped the rest of her evening and the rest of her arc. The fact that she doesn't is a huge, huge, huge reason why this episode is so rich and so rewarding. With darkness now fallen, battle plans drawn up. There's nothing to do but wait. Arya finds the hound on the battlements where he's drinking alone. He hands her a wineskin. She sits and drinks. Doesn't say anything. You never used to shut up, he says. Now you're just sitting there like a mute. Guess I've changed, she says in reply. And this episode in many ways to honor that change and the time we've spent with these people on the road to achieving it. We've changed also as an audience right along with them. Arya asks the hound why he's here. Not atop the battlements, but here in Winterfell, Uh fighting for something as he's never done before. Why he went beyond the wall. Why, in other words, he suddenly cares about anyone other than himself. When was the last time you fought for anyone but yourself? She asks. I fought for you, didn't I? He says, and it's a special reply that absolutely brings her up short because he absolutely did. Arya and Sansa unlocked something in the Hound that no one else had a desire to protect someone or something other than his own prospects. Long ago, after losing a chunk of his neck and facing the prospect of infection or healing by fire, the hound opened up to Arya, telling her what the mountain did to him as a boy. You think you're on your own, he asked her in a moment of supreme vulnerability. And when Brienne tried to rescue her, he nearly gave his life to save Arya from this person who he didn't know if he could trust. Right. You're the wrong one to watch over her, he told Brienne, solidifying in that moment the shift in his intention. It wasn't about ransom anymore. It was about having something and someone worth fighting for. They never quite said it aloud to each other. And as Arya told the Waif and Bravos, her feelings toward the Hound aren't clear even to her, but they unlock something transformative for each other. Beric joins them. Beric, always a great hang, no matter the mood. And we get an iconic rejoinder from the Hound. Oh, for fuck's sake, he says, may as well be in a bloody wedding. And this is really amusing, but also highly effective meta-commentary because on Thrones, obviously, weddings often bring uh, Mm -hmm. severe peril. But in real life, what are they? They are gatherings. They are celebrations of life and love and recognition that a great change has come. Beric tries to engage Arya to apologize for how they ended things, but she is just flat out not interested. And the Hound asks if Beric was on her list, and she says, for a little while. We, the audience, who have seen the entirety of the story play out, have a greater appreciation for Beric's role. But to Arya, he represents a man who got a chance that her father never did. 
and a man who traded Gendry's life for gold. Mm -hmm. Death and regret, in other words. Beric's not phased by her lack of engagement. That's all right, he says. The Lord of Light has brought us together all the same. This is his moment. And the hound cuts him off before he can finish, threatening to toss him off the edge of the castle, reminding him that Thoros isn't there to bring him back. But we can't help but recall Beric's speech from the Eastwatch dungeons last season as he tried to convince all of the assembled that they were on the same side. Mm -hmm. Here we all are, he said then, at the edge of the world, at the same moment, heading in the same direction for the same reason. Our reasons aren't your reasons, Davos said. Beric replied, it doesn't matter what we think our reasons are. There's a greater purpose at work, and we serve it together, whether we know it or not. What followed that, obviously, was carnage and despair. Blind faith is not for everyone. It's certainly not for Arya, for whom the reasons matter very much. And she gets up here to leave. And when the hound asks where she's going, she says, I'm not spending my final hours with you two miserable old shits. As important as Arya's time with the Hound was, and as crucial as it was for the audience and Arya, in terms of understanding the danger of letting perception govern our decisions instead of forming our own opinions, Uh he also represents a time in her life defined by running instead of challenging and of bending to the will of hate and violence. Clegane has changed, just like Arya. That's what this conversation is about. But he's also the man who used to say, hate's a good thing as any to keep a person going better than most and killing's the sweetest thing there is. When she gets off off the battlements, she's moving away from the war towards something else. Love, hope, and connection. With a pit stop at the shooting range, Gendry finds her as she's loosing arrows, and again, we can't help but think of how time has melted away. In the pilot, we saw Arya land a bullseye on Bran's target, and here she is all these years later, shooting not to steal a moment where she could pursue her passion, but because that's what life demands. Gendry arrives and quite literally gives her his spear. It's a staff, like the one she trained with in Bravos, but tipped with dragonglass. Last time you saw me, he says, you wanted me to come to Winterfell. Took the long road, but of course they, like us, are thinking of the moment in season three when Arya tried to stop him from staying with the Brotherhood. I can be your family, she said. You wouldn't be my family, he replied. You'd be my lady. Now, in this moment, the possibility of them being family to each other feels real. Yep. They're not safe. No one is. War is looming. But they're not on the run, not someone else's hostage. They're in control of their choices, and they want to choose each other. Arya asks him about Melisandre, what she wanted. And None when- of your fucking business, honestly. <laughs> I haven't seen you in four years. No, I go the other I, no, way with this. I, no, very, very healthy not- to talk about your sexual history with your partner. It wasn't obvious they were going to be partners at that time, and it was traumatic. It was traumatic, and you're just like, tell me about Melisandre. No, like, how have you been? I haven't seen you for years, and you want to know about that? They've had plenty of small talk by now. I go the other way. Can we respect, like, a traumatic experience for the guy? He's the one making jokes about how he doesn't always have— People deal deal with trauma in different ways. Yes, exactly. He was tied up in a fucking insects. Are they insects? I don't even know. Leeches? Put on his genitals. She doesn't know that. She's about to find out. Exactly. How would she find out if they weren't communicating openly about it? He could just—he should have been like, it's none of your business. I'm sorry. Yeah, he had the choice to say that. Okay. (laughs) When Gendry explains why Melisandre needed his blood, that he is King Robert's bastard, Arya's stunned. She had no idea that that's who he was. Tied me up, Gendry says, stripped me down, put leeches all over me. And Arya stops twirling her staff as he's saying this and begins to take off her gloves. (laughs) Was that your first time, she asks. Yeah, I've never had leeches put all over my cock, he says. Your first time with a woman, she clarifies, and he's 
stumbling. What? I didn't, I wasn't with her. Aria, unfazed. Were you with other girls before that in King's Landing or after? Again, none of your business. Again, very healthy to discuss your sexual history we're not, with we're your not partner. Together. We have no relationship at this time. So you You're like a client? You think you should wait till after you fuck someone? No, to ask but about like their sexual history. Can we like say what is going on here? You're a client right now. I just delivered a product to you. Bizarre and then take. all of a sudden you're going to be like, how many girls have you fucked? I haven't talked to you in four years. This is an sed- act of seduction. It's foreplay. Okay. They're about to begin the act. Right. Gendry is super nervous as the energy of the conversation changes. But Arya is really confident and in control. Yeah. You don't remember? She teases him. He says, yes, I was. One, Arya asked. Two, 20. I didn't keep count, Gendry said. And <laughs> her reply is... Absolutely perfect. Yes, you did. Yeah, totally did. Of course you did. <laughs> course, what are you talking of about? Of course. Come on. And he sighs and says three. And then she states her intention. Three means one, right? Probably. Yeah. Though again, <laughs> the fact that the number isn't like 75 is kind of astonishing to me. Everybody in this world is just not really getting it. Jamie Lannister, one. <laughs> <laughs> His sister. If Jamie dies only having fucked his sister, that's really going to be a tragedy. One of the greatest tragedies this world will have ever seen. (gasps) We're probably going to die soon, Arya says. I want to know what it's like before that happens. She's looking at him, and he's looking right back, and he says, Arya, I— And then she starts to kiss him, starts to undress him, and then she's undressing herself, pushes him down onto the hay bags once his shirt's off, and then she takes off her shirt. And he sees her scars, and we can see him looking at them and processing what they mean. Mm -hmm. This is his aria, but also there's so much that he doesn't know about her. And they're showing themselves to each other, but they still have secrets. And then Arya says, I'm not the red woman. Take your own bloody pants off. Incredible. He does, and she does too. And then she climbs on top of him. And as Robert once said to Ned, we'll join our houses. Indeed. (laughs) Indeed. Now, there has been some blowback to the scene because a lot of people think of Arya as a child, and they either can't shake that she was a child when we met her or that she was a child when Gendry met her. But she's not a child now, and this scene reinforces that really Mm -hmm. wonderfully and powerfully. She has grown into a woman, into an adult, someone who, after years of heartache and captivity, can now freely make her own choices. And that's something to celebrate. It's also an incredible reminder of how far we've come with these characters. She was a kid when we met her, yes, but again, she isn't now. We've watched her grow. We've watched her mature. This is a testament to change and empowerment. Great episode for female empowerment. On what could be her last night on Earth, she's seeking the most human of desires. Not to kill, not to shed her identity, but to know herself and another person in a new way, to be close to somebody, to be intimate and vulnerable with another person. And she's going for what she wants. On a show where so many female characters have been subject to the whims and desires of others, forced to suffer true horror, it was amazingly refreshing, Mm -hmm. a real gift to Mm -hmm. see Arya take control of her desire and her sexual identity. Because far too few women in this world, in this story, have ever had that choice. And in this moment, Arya said to death, not today. Yes. Today, she chose companionship over regret and love over hate. Bran, you will never walk again, Brandon Stark, but you will fly, Brandon Rivers, the previous three-eyed raven, once told Bran. And that's a good metaphor for Bran's perspective now. As the three-eyed raven, tasked we now know, with keeping the world's memory, he gazes as if from a great height on individual human concerns so that a larger picture reveals itself. 
for Brand, embracing life in the face of death is about the whole, the structure, not the pieces and parts embodied by these people who he once felt warmly for. Any other person in the story would have justly carried a grudge towards Jamie had the Kingslayer pushed them out of a window, crippling them. Brand is not. When Jamie tries to apologize, saying that he's, quote, not that person anymore, Brand tells him that he would be had he not pushed him out of that window. And I would still be Brandon Stark. You're not angry at me? I'm not angry at anyone. But make no mistake, this is not an act of forgiveness, not in the way we understand it. Bran isn't angry at anyone, but he doesn't feel any particular warmth for anyone either. When Jamie asks why Bran didn't tell the assembled in the Great Hall about the day in the tower, Bran says, you won't be able to help us in this fight if I let them murder you first. In this fight for survival, Bran and the Night King are like the kings on a chessboard. To win, the other needs to kill the other. Bran wants all his pieces on the board, but does he necessarily care about them as people as well? At the War Council, after John informs the group about the Night King's singular vulnerability, kill him and the Army of the Dead falls, and Jamie states that in that case, the Night King will never show himself, Bran finally tells us what the Night King wants. He wants Bran. He tried before with many other three-eyed ravens, he says. He wants an endless night. He wants to erase this world, and I am its memory. Which leads Sam to wax philosophical about the nature of death. That's what death is, isn't it? Forgetting. And there's a saying that everyone experiences two deaths. The first when your heart stops, and the second, when everyone who knew you dies. This, in a sense, is what Sam is getting at, that without Bran as a human embodiment of the world's memory, life would just stop. But is that even the case? What does that mean in the context of this story? The previous Three-Eyed Raven wasn't exactly open about sharing his memories of the world. Blood Raven stayed ensconced under a weirwood far beyond the wall for decades, interacting with no one, sharing that accrued memory of the ages with no one, waiting, only until, in his words, the hour was late to pass his knowledge on to Bran. So what would happen, exactly, if the Night King killed Bran? What would be lost? How does memory or the absence of it create the endless night the Night King seeks? And we don't know. And in that, this reveal is kind of disappointing, even though it is the first inkling of a motivation that we get of what the Night King wants. have to wonder if this is the full story and the full reveal or just one more piece of it because— the timing of the reveal and the eve of battle, but yeah. not sooner, right. this level of information, but not more, feeds into that larger idea of Bran needing to, in essence, be careful with what he dispenses and right. how and when, because right. there's some sort of effect right. to him clarifying anything, not only about the past, but potentially about right. the future. Which would explain why there's certain things he says and certain things he doesn't say. Well, we will see. I'm also fascinated by Sam replying to this reveal from Bran by saying, your memories don't come from books. Your stories aren't just stories. If I right. wanted to erase the world of men, I'd start with you. Because that feels very deliberate given what seems, and maybe we're all wrong, but what right. seems like the inevitable culmination of Sam's arc as the ultimate author of the history, A Song of Ice and Fire, like something has to happen that recalibrates Sam's view on this. It's a great point because— to vault off your point, actually, the histories and the books that Sam is referencing here are much more accessible than the memories of the Three-Eyed Raven. So is what he's saying even true according to the facts that he's working with right now? Right. Well, and in a meta sense, too, like in the way that what transpires in the story reflects how we feel about the right. story, books and stories are our memories. Right. And Sam certainly is a character who has always believed that. And this story, yeah. the books, the show, all of it, it proves that for us. And so this, again, this feels like a setup just to I agree. then come back 
around the other way. Does that mean that brand will die and they will have to restore memory in another fashion? Does it mean that Sam will go ahead and write this and prove the merit of this kind of shared human interaction and communication regardless of whether brand is around? I don't know, but that seemed really notable and like deliberately contrary to what he actually believes. And now another quick break for a word from our sponsors. Today's Binge Moment is brought to you by Sonos. The experts at Sonos meticulously design every speaker from the inside out, combining best-in-class woofers and tweeters with proprietary software. They work with renowned producers, mixers, and artists to ensure an immersive listening experience and brilliant room-filling sound. Sonos TruePlay puts the speaker tuning capability of the recording pros in the palm of your hands, optimizing the speaker's sound for the unique acoustics of your room. Sonos Home Theater also includes speech enhancement mode to clarify the sound of the human voice. Perfect for when characters whisper, the action intensifies. Simply turn it on in the Sonos app and never miss a minute of the story. Handy! Sonos works with all your streaming services and is easy to control with the Sonos app, your TV remote, AirPlay 2, your voice, and Amazon Alexa, or the touch panel. Sonos speakers and components work seamlessly together, making it easy to customize your sound system and expand when you're ready. Simply connect Sonos over Wi-Fi and enjoy listening in every room. I actually love the speech enhancement mode. It's got this little speech bubble icon. You press that and all of a sudden you the conversations really jump out. It's really handy when you're trying to annotate and take down conversations when you're working on an outline for binge mode. We watch Game of Thrones, no. as you know. Do we? We do. It's true. And we need to hear everything. If it's an episode, like episode two, we want to be able to hang on to every word, every <gasps> sentence that these characters are saying to each other because who knows, it might be the last time they speak in an episode like the upcoming one, Battle. We want to hear the clink of the swords, the whooshing of the arrows, the of the fire. We want to hear it all. Sonos lets us. Go to Sonos.com to order your sound system today. That's S-O-N-O-S dot com. Today's Binge Mode is also brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. It can be a little frustrating, especially if you're in a hurry or running late, to find yourself at a railway crossing waiting for a train. And if the signals are going and the train's not even there yet, you can feel a bit tempted to try and sneak across the tracks. Well, don't ever. Trains are often going a lot faster than you expect them to be, and they can't stop. Even if the engineer hits the brakes right away, you can take a train over a mile to stop. By that time, what used to be your car is just a crushed hunk of metal, and what used to be you better not to think about that. The point is, you can't know how quickly the train will arrive. The train can't stop even if it sees you. The result is disaster. If the signals are on, the train is on its way. And you just need to remember one thing. Stop. Trains can't. And now back to binge mode. Let's talk about Jorah. We're treated to three Jorah-centric exchanges in this episode, each pairing him with someone who represents something about his past, present, or future. The first takes place in Danny's chambers, where Danny is stewing after being outvoted and keeping Jamie here at Winterfell, and then she eviscerated Tyrion for basically failing her yet again okay. as Jorah and Varys strolled along, bearing witness to this all. Tyrion told them after Danny walked away that he suspected he was soon for the chop. Yeah. Someone is going to wear this pin pretty soon. And that pin, of course, is more than an accessory. It represents power, standing, influence. 
Most importantly to Jorah, it represents closeness, trust, a relationship with Daenerys, a woman he loves. A lesser man bearing less guilt and less forceful desire to constantly atone for his past mistakes might have tried to exploit this. Jorah instead goes to Danny to speak on Tyrion's behalf, his one-time prisoner, his one-time co-prisoner, and the man who once encouraged Danny to spare Jorah's life, but also to cast him aside. A ruler who kills those devoted to her is not a ruler who inspires devotion, Tyrion told Danny and Marine. You're going to need to inspire devotion and a lot of it if you're ever going to rule across the narrow sea, but you cannot have him by your side when you do. Now, Jorah ultimately regained Danny's trust. And he and Tyrion have fought together for her cause many times since. But this is Game of Thrones, and we've seen less well-intentioned, well-reasoned decisions spawn deadly retribution time and again. And yet when Jorah enters Danny's chambers, it's not to usurp Tyrion's position, which he probably could have done mm-hmm. in this moment, or, as Mal regrets deeply, yeah. to finally get it. <laughs> A little pre-battle sex. Come on. Let's do it. It's to save Tyrion's job and maybe Tyrion's life. He opens by begging Danny's forgiveness for the intrusion. And when she asks if he's done anything to warrant her forgiveness, it presents the perfect segue. Many things, he says, still full of shame. Long ago and long forgiven, Danny replies. But you did forgive me, Jorah says, despite my failures. He tells her that when he heard she'd named Tyrion her hand, it broke his heart. And she says that when she did so, she didn't know if she was ever going to see Jorah again, which must be quite a boost for Jorah here, but it's absolutely brutal for Tyrion, for whom being named Danny's hand was a defining life moment, not an honor that was granted because his father said so, because his name was Lannister, but because Tyrion had earned it, had proved his worth. But Jorah remains steadfast here, not tempted not led astray. His life was often derailed by temptation, and here now facing the end after being granted new leases on life, he chooses to help, to try to save, to try to restore some goodness. He tells her that she made the right choice in naming Tyrion her hand, and he may not like him, as he makes sure to confirm while (laughs) lamenting Tyrion's incessant chatter out on the open seas back in their way to Slaver's Bay years ago. But he admires Tyrion's intellect, Mm-hmm. The mind behind all those words, he says. He's made mistakes, serious mistakes. And Jorah would know. And sure enough, he adds, as have we all. He owns his and learns from them. Now, we can debate the veracity of that characterization and whether or not Tyrion is actually learning from them, but ultimately the sentiment that Jorah is sharing is what matters. You're advising me to forgive the man who stole your position, Danny asks? I am, he says, before also encouraging her to go speak with Sansa. Jorah doesn't know, just like nobody knows, if he's going to survive the battle. But he knows that regardless of what unfolds out there on the field, he wants to serve Danny and help her win. And that means helping her remember what he told her so long ago. No one can survive in this world without help. His next exchange is when we enter mid-flow as Sam comes out into the yard. He encounters Jorah in the midst of a heated conversation with Liana Mormont, his cousin and the head of their house. A position that Jorah once occupied before getting himself exiled to Essos in order to escape Ned Stark's execution. For so long, Jorah's crimes have hung over his character, leaving regret as one of the primary forces in his life. He betrayed his father and his family and their good name, having only the grace to leave behind Longclaw, the ancestral sword, when he escaped. More on that later. He never got a chance to face his father again and try to seek forgiveness. But here at last, he's interacting with members of his family, those who know that mere years ago, his return would have meant the chop. He's trying to tell Liana, just hang back during the fight. 
And naturally, she refuses. As we've heard her say, she's not going to sit idly by while men do the fighting for her. Jorah isn't trying to take that away from her, but the knight who once failed to protect the future of his house is thinking of that future now. Listen to me, he says. You're the future of our house. I don't need you to remind me of that, she says. A rightly savage reminder that she knows exactly who she is and she knows exactly why Jorah is saying this to her and where he's been. She's in the position he was once meant to occupy, that he once did occupy. He wants her, guess where? In the crypts. No safer place. No safer place, everybody. But she insists on staying above ground. I pledge to fight for the North and I will. And when they sense Sam's presence, Liana ends the conversation, dismisses him and moves away. But then she stops and looks back and says six words that bring Jorah more peace than anything short of victory or Danny's hand could. I wish you good fortune, cousin. Wonderful. It long seemed impossible that Jorah would ever get to interact with anyone from his family again, let alone receive this drop of mercy and forgiveness. Long ago, Danny asked Jorah what he wanted, and he issued one word that conveyed the longing of a lifetime, home. Here, without compromising anything about her station or intention, Liana gave that back to him. Truly wonderful. Sam then slides right into her place, carrying what we instantly recognize as Heartsbane. It's his family sword, as he tells Jorah, who, on the heels of this exchange with a member of the family he thought he'd lost forever, tells Sam, you still have a family. Mm -hmm. And Sam says, yes, and I'd love to defend them with it, but I can't really hold it upright. Your father, he taught me how to be a man, how to do what's right. This is right. It's Valerian Steel. I'd be honored if you'd take it. And he hands Heartsbane to Jorah, who unsheaths a few inches of the blade and looks down at the signature ripples, the ripples that he once held in his hand before, his own family sword. And in this instant, you can see Jorah's entire life playing across his face. I'll wield it in his memory, he tells Sam, to guard the realms of men. It's incredible. This is a really, really touching moment, a beautifully symbolic gesture. Sam and Jorah, of course, have their own history direct history. Sam saved Jorah's life when no one else even sought to try, curing his grayscale, allowing him to return to Danny and to life in Westeros and to his spot right here in the Great War. But they have all these other connections, too. They both grew estranged from their fathers, albeit for very different reasons. In many ways, the rules of inheritance in Westeros, just like the rules of succession, speak to an outmoded patriarchy that needs to be abolished, the wheel that our heroes need to break. But our character's grew up in this world. These traditions, some of them at least, mean something to them. These Valerian steel swords in particular are precious family heirlooms, gems in the world and in the war here, symbols not only of strength, but of worth. Recall when Jon tried to give Longclaw back to Jorah in season seven, telling him that it belongs with his family, with House Mormont. I brought shame onto my house, Jorah told Jon as he held the blade in his hand, looking back at the life that he was supposed to have but left behind. I broke my father's heart. I forfeited the right to carry the sword. It's yours. May it serve you well and your children after you. And it was an agonizing exchange in which Jorah, who had begged for forgiveness so many times, in essence admitted to not really thinking he deserved it, at least not in all forms. Heartsbane is not Longclaw, but it is a proxy. It's another fabled blade at the center of a father-son bond that was ripped asunder. Sam cannot grant Jorah absolution. Nobody can. But in handing him Heartsbane, he's handing him something that looks a lot like life, like belief, like faith. This edged return to something that he thought he'd lost, this release from a burden that seemed eternal. Jorah once said, there's a beast in every man, and it stirs when you put a sword in his hand. But the only thing stirring in Jorah here is peace and possibility. Mm -hmm. I'll see you when it's through, Sam says. 
cementing the sense that the closure Jorah has achieved tonight will be his final act. I hope we win, Sam says. Brutal. Beautiful and brutal. Before we go on, let's quickly hit our custom segment sponsored by Oreo. Oreo has teamed up with Game of Thrones to create limited edition packaging and cookies embossed with the sigils of three remaining contending houses, as well as the symbol of the Night King. Oreo cookies are best enjoyed when dunked into milk. Who got dunked on this week? Well, hate to go right back to the same glass of milk, but our boy Tyrion. Very tough. Got dunked on savagely once again in front of all of the assembled masses in the hall. Only all the assembled masses in the hall. Then even more savagely in front of close friends and confidants in the hallway where Danny said that he was either a traitor or a fool. Those aren't great choices for our guy Tyrion. You know who else got dunked on? Jonathan Snow. My guy is a solid 5'7", five, 5'8", five, but they're treating him his height as if it's obviously a weakness. And they are dunking on him constantly. Yet again, this time by Daenerys Targaryen, who says, oh, you know, Jon uh, is only the second man in my life that I've ever loved like this. Who is the first, Sansa asked? Someone taller. <laughs> Danny, you're like 5'1". Calm down. <laughs> what is happening? It's brutal. To be fair, Drogo is very tall, but it's brutal. Come on. Thanks to Oreo. And head to Oreo.com and pledge your fealty to the house or night king of your choice. And tune into Game of Thrones on Sundays on HBO. We've talked a lot about Danny's weakening moral compass, shaky dedication to breaking the wheel, her tendency to lash out when angered, or when her authority is challenged. In this episode, more isolated than ever, she's also showed us why people like Tyrion and Barristan and Grey Worm chose to believe in her in the first place. After John backs up Sansa's decision to allow Jamie Lannister to stay at Winterfell, he sweeps from the Great Hall without meeting Danny's eye. Clearly shaken by this coldness from the man she loves, and surely the possibility that he might be aligning against her with Sansa with some darker intentions, she takes her anger out on her hand. Tyrion's failure to correctly gauge Cersei's intentions is troubling. You have no one at your side who understands the land you want to rule, the strengths and weaknesses of the houses that will either join or oppose you, Tyrion said to her back in season five when he made his pitch to join her administration. This was supposed to be what he was good at. Mm -hmm. If he can't read his own family, then as Danny notes, it's certainly fair to label him either a traitor or a fool. And after what we've seen from Danny recently, such a pronouncement could easily be a death sentence. Yet when Jorah comes to her chambers to advocate for Tyrion, she listens and eventually agrees with his assessment. Jorah is himself the embodiment of Danny's flexibility. He betrayed her, spied on her for King's Landing, and that information was used in an assassination attempt. Yes, she exiled him, but she also, out of her love for him and as an acknowledgement of his feelings for her, took him back into her service. So when Jorah then asks her to meet with Sansa to help bolster the fraught relationship with the Northerners, whose land and castle she occupies and whose strength she needs, she agrees. She finds Sansa in the company as usual. Of her bestie, Bronson Royce. Does he have any? What else does he have to do? Literally nothing. <laughs> I mean, he's not teaching Sweet Robin to <laughs> miss arrow shots anymore. <laughs> he's got time. <gasps> Sansa is doing exactly what Danny wants to be doing: effortlessly giving orders and administering her realm. Royce reacts with chilliness. Though it should be noted. 
my guy, you're not even from the North. Why are you acting like this? Why are you standing for Sansa like this? He needs to be angry about something now that Littlefinger's not around anymore. Yes. But he does respectively bow and take his leave. And Danny begins on the subject of Jamie Lannister. It seems, she notes, that she and Sansa were in agreement about the Kingslayer. Sansa says, Bran has been loyal to me always. I trust her more than anyone. And Danny replies by saying, I wish I could have that kind of faith in my advisors. It is a shocking bit of candor from Daenerys and a measure of how delicate the situation is. Sansa, unflappable and as impressive as any character this season, adds her voice to Jorah's. Tyrion is a good man, she says. He was never anything but decent toward me. And Danny notes not unreasonably, that she didn't hire Tyrion, a member of the house that murdered her father, because he's a good dude. (laughs) I asked him to be my hand because he was good and intelligent and ruthless when he had to be, she says. Danny says that Tyrion should not have trusted Cersei, which again, fair, but so is Sansa's reply. You shouldn't have either. And there's the rub. Danny's right to complain about the quality of her counsel, minus Jorah. Jorah's been doing great. His counsel is as flawless as his jawline, folks. He's been doing great. <laughs> but if Tyrion advised Danny to jump off a bridge, jump off the battlements. You gonna jump off a bridge if Tyrion tells you to do it? <laughs> if Tyrion says jump on a bridge, you gonna go? <laughs> <laughs> Would she have done it? Yes, Tyrion was suckered by Cersei, but in the end, as queen, Danny must own her decisions if she wants to engender the respect and authority, which Sansa seems to generate so easily. I thought he knew his sister, Danny says. And again, the vulnerability that she's showing here is notable. Families are complicated, Sansa says. <laughs> and while Danny tries to find common ground here by saying a sad thing to have in common, the truth is that Danny only had Viserys growing up. It's ironic that the event that placed Danny on her path, the destruction of her house, could also be part of what keeps her from relating to those who would serve her. The conversation that follows proves the truth of Sansa's statement about families. Danny starts with an olive branch, noting that they're both rulers in command of people not predisposed to female leadership. Why then, she asks, does she sense a rift between them? And the answer is John. Family, it is complicated. And once Danny and the realm learn the truth about John's family, it's about to get a lot more complicated. Sansa replies that men do stupid things for women. Mm. They're easily manipulated, mm-hmm. she says. And Danny's response is easily her best moment of the episode and probably the season thus far. All my life, I've known one goal, she says, the Iron Throne, taking it back from the people who destroyed my family and almost destroyed yours. My war was against them until I met John. Now Danny is in the North fighting against the Night King and his horde of dead men and dead animals and dead giants, all in support of John. Tell me, she asks Sansa, who manipulated whom? And it's a great point. And Sansa ever so slightly warms to Danny, noting that. She should have shown gratitude when Danny arrived with her armies and her dragons to defend the North at John's side. But that thaw is short-lived. Sansa, ever eager to represent the interests of her people, asks, what happens after? Mm-hmm. After the army of the dead is defeated, after Cersei is brought to heal, what happens next? What happens to the North? It was taken from us, she says. And we took it back. And we said we'd never bow to anyone else ever again. What about the North. That answer will have to wait. Danny might feel better about having to dunk on Tyrion and losing the Jamie vote and receiving a light ultimatum from Sansa and watching Sansa and Theon beautifully reunite, leaving Danny out of their embrace, and on and on the list goes. 
if things were in a better place with John. Yeah. But despite her proclamation to Sansa that she loves John so fully that she put her own war her and her own ambition on hold to fight his, mm-hmm. things are in a bad place with Bay. They're not great. <laughs> it's not good. <laughs> and she doesn't know why. He ducked her after Jamie's trial, and he does the same thing after the war council ends, yep. which is alarming, given that the battle plan amounts to don't let the Night King kill Bran, <laughs> try to get to the Night King, and thus decimate his entire army, and also don't die. Yeah. We see the overhead map of the troops on the grounds, and though the placement of the Dothraki and the Unsullied and the Westerosi soldiers seems fairly well thought out, and a ring of fire looms, it seems safe to say that the dragons will probably be pretty key in all of this. And that means John and Danny need to be on the same page. Bran says that no one has ever tried to use dragon fire on the walkers before, but Danny surely will. All of the trailer shots, both for the season and the upcoming episode, so far, show John on the ground. But Rhaegal will mm-hmm. presumably enter the fight as well. At a minimum, we know the Dragonfire kills whites. The dragons are the most precious resource in this fight and will be invaluable if the Night King and Viserion are, in fact, at Winterfell. Also, you know, war or no war, communication is key in a relationship, people. As the episode nears its end, Danny goes down to the crypts to find John, and here in this sacred Stark place, he tells her at last who he is. He's looking at Lyanna's tomb, and she asks, who's that? Lyanna Stark. My brother Rhaegar, everyone told me he was decent and kind. He liked to sing, gave money to poor children, and he raped her. He didn't. He loved her. John turns to her. They were married in secret. After Rhaegar fell on the trident, she had a son. Robert would have murdered the baby if he ever found out, and Lyanna knew it. So the last thing she did as she bled to death on her birthing bed was give the boy to her brother, Ned Stark to raise as his bastard. My name, my real name, is Aegon Targaryen. And Danny's face had been falling already, and on hearing his name, she pulls away. That's impossible, she says. I wish it were. Who told you this? Bran. He saw it. He saw it? And Samuel confirmed it. He read about their marriage at the Citadel without even knowing what it meant. The erasure of Gilly from history <laughs> continues! Justice for Gilly. Justice for Gilly. Now, in John's defense, he does not know. He does know, not know. He doesn't know. He should. He should. Because Sam should have told him. He should have told him. <laughs> A secret no one in the world knew, Danny says, incredulous, except your brother and your best friend. It's a great point. She stops just short of shouting, how convenient. <laughs> she doesn't know John if she thinks this is what he wants. Doesn't seem strange to you? It's true, Danny. I know it is. If it were true, it would make you the last male heir of House Targaryen. You'd have a claim to the Iron Throne. And just then, the war horns blare and interrupt them. But John's face says it all. He's thinking about identity and truth and lies and what his life meant if he's about to die. And also, he's banging his aunt. Mm-hmm. He loves her. And the burden of what he's learned. And Danny's thinking about power and how the man she was just claiming to love has morphed into a very real threat to her life's work in front of her very eyes. Danny is one of the only characters amid all these beautiful vignettes honoring closeness and loyalty and love who feels isolated and removed, not drawing closer. And this is a bad sign. John at least has other people to bro out with <laughs> while he's going through this. The Night's Watch and Isaac, give me a wolf howl. Actually, give me silence because ghost doesn't really make he doesn't, sounds. He doesn't howl. <laughs> he just looks... Oh. Cute. He looks so cute. He's a fluffy puppy. He looked really cute. 
The single most important thing in this episode, I think we can agree, is Ghost Returning by John and Sam Side on the Battlements. It's a little scary to think, obviously, that he was maybe just reintroduced to be killed off next episode. Jason waited until I was not on the Ask the Maester live set with him this week to say that he thinks say, there's a 70% chance that I didn't Ghost will say die. It. I didn't want to say it with you there, but I feel like they can't wait to do it. Honestly, the way they've treated him over the past several yeah, seasons, like, gonna cry. the way they t- treated Summer, devastating. I just feels like they can't wait to do it. And it's, it's devastating. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, like It's devastating. Yeah. I wonder if he'll I don't, maybe That gives be, me no joy. I know, I know. I wonder if maybe he'll be guarding Bran. I think, yes. I think Bran will warg into him and they'll be like a little— Also, just the practicality of if they have to escape on Dragon. Yeah, like, it's like how? Uh, I'm devastated thinking about it. It would have been really nice to see someone engage with Ghost to pet him. Someone pet him. Let he him looks do so cool cute. shit. He's so cute sitting so there. So fluffy. But still, at least we saw him for yeah. the first time since season six, episode yeah. three. It's something. And as Ghost stands Sentinel and Sam goads John about not having told Danny the truth about his parentage yet, Ed arrives. The Night's Watch together once more. And now our watch begins, Ed says, echoing the words that they all said back when they took their Night's Watch vows. John and Sam were boys then. Yes. And they're all men grown now. They've lived and they've loved, and in John's case, died. They're light years away from where they started when Thorne made them man the wall at night as a punitive measure. Now they're manning the wall because they've taken on willingly, to a certain extent, the burden of saving humanity, of guarding the realms of men. So many others are sharing drinks or songs or making love for the first time, and these brothers are, as ever, the watchers of the wall. John asks about Gilly and little Sam, and we get our, I don't know, 97th, no safer place than the crypts line of the episode. A little heavy-handed. We have a small note. Oh, my God. Because you can just say the crypts. You don't have to say it's the safest place. You got to Hogwartsify it. Go all in. Go all in. Where's uh, Gilly and little Sam? They're down in the crypts because you know, John, absolutely the safest place here at Winterfell. At which point, John asks if Sam wants to be down in the crypts with his family, you know, to protect them. John clarifies after Sam looks wounded. Sam is rightly outraged. (laughs) And he pulls his CV out. (laughs) Everyone seems to forget that I was the first man to kill a White Walker. I've killed Fens, Ed Fen. (laughs) (laughs) I've saved Gilly more than once. The ghost was really crucial in one of those times. I stole a considerable amount of books for the Citadel <laughs> Library. Petty theft is and, one of the great achievements. <laughs> I love Sam so much. I drank milk one day after the expiration date. <laughs> Survived the fist of the first man. You need me out there. Ed says, well, if that's what it's come to, we really are fucked. Well, calling you fucked wouldn't be strictly accurate. Wow. Just three bros busting (laughs) each other's extremely blue balls. (laughs) Having a laugh. Normal way to spend an evening minus the fact that they're watching for the arrival of a life-erasing supervillain. Samuel Tarley, Ed says, slayer of White Walkers, lover of ladies. As if we needed any more signs, the world was ending. It's a nice moment of levity and also a fine excuse to pause. And remember that our heroes are also just people experiencing the ribbing and desire that many of us do. Think back to when we started, Sam says. Us, Gren, Pip. Now it's just us three, John says. It's a somber note to end on, as is Ed's. Last man left, burn the rest of us, reply. But as the camera pans out and we see their backs looking out from the wall, we realize 
that they're acting as shields in the darkness, fulfilling, in another way, their vows. Let's chat about Tyrion for a few minutes here. Tough look. Fascinating episode for our guy. Yes. Starting off as a continuation of the recent dunk fest that he suffered through after his plague of mistakes, but turning into a series of admiring statements about the strength of his mind. Perhaps maybe foreshadowing a return to form in the impending battle or the wreckage that that battle leaves behind. At the opening, though, Tyrion's left shaking off public aspersions against his character, with Danny saying in front of, like, tons of people, like you knew your sister? She's pissed. <laughs> and when Tyrion tries to speak on Jamie's behalf, asking why he'd be here if not for true intentions, Danny says perhaps he trusts his little brother to defend him, right up to the moment he slits my throat. Mm. Note the use of a little brother here, which, paired with a later death threat from Tyrion against Cersei, has fueled the resurgence of the, wait, maybe Tyrion is the Valonqar theory? Yeah. He's anew. When Danny and Tyrion and Jorah and Varys are alone after Jamie's trial, Danny says, either you knew Cersei was lying and let me believe otherwise, or you didn't know it all, which makes you, as we've said before, either a traitor or a fool. And this is a savage assessment, yes. one that would just end most people's ability to go on. But Tyrion does. He says, I was a fool. Not for the first time, Danny says. And again, harsh but fair. Tyrion, as we've outlined, has been taking major L's in his time with Danny, and believing in Cersei was among the most inexcusable things he's done. Cersei still sits on the Iron Throne, Danny says. If you can't help me take it back, I'll find another hand who can. Later, to Jamie, Tyrion says that it's hard to blame Danny for responding this way. I've made a mistake common to clever people I underestimated my opponents. What an acknowledgement of Sansa's wisdom right here, to use yes. her exact language. Mm -hmm. A trend for him in recent seasons, but one perhaps that he can now correct. After looking it in the face and owning it, Tyrion brings up Cersei's pregnancy as explanation, saying he believed that it had changed her, believed that it was a chance for them to start again. Why he'd think this, <laughs> given that she was a monster who tried to murder him and did murder many others, while... She had numerous children alive? What is he talking about? Is just a crazy take? What is he talking about? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Many viewers have espoused some version of where's my Tyrion in recent episodes and seasons, wondering what's befallen the brilliant tactician and strategist, the preternaturally adept player of the Game of Thrones we once knew. So it's oddly refreshing to see that as the world crumbles around them and they seek to prop it up, Tyrion's instinct is to catch up with his recently estranged brother and issue a familiar refrain. So we're going to die at Winterfell. Not the death I would have chosen. I always pictured myself dying in my own bed at the age of 80 with a belly full of wine and a girl's mouth around my cock. And Jamie finishes the line here for him. And we remember Tyrion saying this in the Vale. And clearly he said it more often than that. It's a cute brotherly moment highlighting that shared history that connects these people as often as it tears them apart. At least Cersei won't get to murder me, he continues. I'm sure I'll feel some satisfaction denying her that pleasure while I'm being ripped apart by dead men. Again, interesting here in terms of the Valonqar theory, but also in terms of how the prospect of death forces us to think not about what, but about how. Even if he's dead, he doesn't want to let her win. Maybe after I'm dead, I'll march down to King's Landing and rip her apart. Later in the War Council, after Tormund's proclamation that the dead will be here imminently, Tyrion says that when the time comes, he and Davos will be up on the wall to give the troops the signal to light the trench. And Danny shuts him down, saying that Davos can wave a torch plenty well on his own. Mm -hmm. And it seems like she's going to shred Tyrion again, and she kind of does, but ultimately the wounds begin to stitch back together here, thanks to Jorah's earlier intervention. You'll be in the crypt, she tells him. <laughs> 
<laughs> the crypt. You know, it's it's extremely safe down there. The safest. <laughs> it's <laughs> incredibly safe down there. No safer place right between Hogwarts and Gringotts yeah. on the power rankings. He initially objects, saying that he's fought before and can again. And then the praise shines through at last. Danny says, there are thousands of them and only one of you. You can't fight as well as them, but you can think better than any of them. You're here because of your mind. Yep. If we survive, I'll need it. Recall when John asked Tyrion way back in season one why he reads so much. Tyrion spoke in reply of how his mind is his weapon, the way that he can bring honor to his family. A mind needs books like a sword needs a whetstone, if it is to keep its edge. Tyrion has apparently stopped fucking, as he basically admits to Jaime in this episode, but as far as we know, he hasn't stopped reading. It's time for that edge to return. We get another hint on top of the myriad, the brain on that guy mentions, that it might be returning soon. As the War Council clears, only Tyrion and Bran are left. You've had a strange journey, says Tyrion, who once brought Bran a custom saddle designed so that he could ride horses and who, as he said to Rob at the time, has always had a soft spot for cripples, bastards, and broken things. Stranger than most, Bran replies. Tyrion asks to hear about it, but the camera cuts away before we get to it. This happens occasionally on Thrones. Tywin's red wedding planning, Cersei and Euron's golden company plan, the bronze sounds out, Arya revelation about Littlefinger's true intentions. But it's rare. Usually we're treated to the details of the moment through a given character's perspective. Could this indicate that what Bran shares with Tyrion here will bear fruit? Yes. Could it? The Tyrion that once thought to light the Blackwater on fire be whipping up some other vintage plan here? Later in the hall, as the group discusses dying with honor and somberness settles over the room like a pall, and Jamie looks at Brienne as she says, at least we'll die with honor. Tyrion chimes in with a smile and a giggle, a rare cheer for him in these trying times. I think we might live, he says, and the group laughs. Our dude is hammered yeah, at this point. He's fucking just wasted. <laughs> he's fucked up. Poured half of the goblet of wine on Pod's hand. Yeah, and, like, let's not forget also, like, he's four foot five and drinking the amount of wine that would stagger a bear. (laughs) He's fucked. He goes in to give a signature pep talk, a rousing speech about their respective achievements. Jamie's mention of Whispering Wood is a slightly alarming potential bit of foreshadowing about the prospect of the Night King splitting his troops, heading to King's Landing while everyone waits for him in Winterfell. Mm -hmm. But that's the future. The present, Tyrion is regaining his confidence, his family, and his grip on the thing that ultimately prevented him from drinking himself into an early death in Pentos belief. Sail with me, if you will. Let's let's go to Nath. To the beautiful beaches. I want to see the beaches again, Mel. (laughs) So that we can talk about Missy and the Worm. Take me to the beaches! These two are doomed. (sighs) Planning the future. On the eve of unthinkable death. Yes. Sounds like a good idea. Solid strategy. I think it's great. After Missandei's latest run-in with the racist Northerners. Hard to ignore the subtext. It is not subtext. <laughs> it is text. It's text. Grey Worm comes up and gives her a very moving pitch about the future, which feels like an inevitable pre-death speech mm-hmm. as he's giving it. When Daenerys takes her throne, he says, there will be no place for us here. I'm loyal to my queen. I will fight for her until our enemies are defeated. But when the war is over and she has won, do you want to grow old in this place? Is there nothing else you want to do? Nothing else you want to see? And there is, in fact, 
Noth, her home, the place that the slavers robbed her of getting to experience and enjoy. I'd like to see the beaches again, she says. Take me to the beaches of Noth. Then I will take you there. Grey Worm promises. Guess what? I don't think they're going. (laughs) (laughs) This is kind of brutal for Danny, who doesn't realize that two of her most loyal advisors are basically planning to split, Mm -hmm. you know, once the battle is won and she's won her throne. But it's worse for Grey Worm and Missy and us because it feels certainly like the end, wrapped in a foolish promise of the future. These two are well within their rights to go live their own lives, Mm -hmm. honestly. They've been through so much. Be happy. That's all we want for them. All we want. That's all we want. As Missy told Davos and John last season, if she asked to go, she believes Danny would let her. Danny helped deliver their freedom, but together they built their own lives back up, finding peace and belonging in each other. Right now, they don't want to think about that ending. They want to think about how to make it last for as long as possible. Speaking of people who are probably going to die. Let's wrap with Theon. Certainly one of these is a fucking goner. It's fair to say that what Game of Thrones achieved this week with Theon is one of its most stunning and impressive recent feats. There are a few things that we as people in the world can agree on. Theon being beyond redemption and deserving of a horrible death seems to be one of them. Yes. At least for a majority of Thrones viewers. And yet, when Danny and Sansa halt their conversation to greet Theon, there is a palpable surge of emotion. Mm -hmm. Not because it's Theon, but because the fact that it's Theon clearly means something to Sansa. Danny, again, isolated as others come together around her, fades into the background as Theon explains that Yara went to reclaim the Iron Islands in her name. And then when Danny asks why he's here, turns and looks at Sansa and says, I want to fight for Winterfell, Lady Sansa, if you'll have me. And she runs into his arms and they embrace and she weeps as Danny watches an outsider in what miraculously really does feel like a family reunion. And later, during the montage playing over Jenny's song, we see one of the most charged and moving looks in the entire episode. Mm-hmm. Theon looking into Sansa's eyes with such gratitude and then back down again in shame. And Sansa looking back, a real smile on her face. Some people have wondered if Thrones is trying to set up a late romance here. But to us, this feels like one more last-ditch effort to rehabilitate Theon, Mm -hmm. who, as he freely admits, has committed crimes past forgiving. Yes. Before what seems like his inevitable death next week. Inevitable. He offered to guard Bran in the Godswood as Bran awaits the Night King. Could this be what Jason has referred to as his Gollum moment? The act, the sacrifice that only he can make, the function he must fulfill. Theon did awful things, and he did not do them for love, as Jamie did, but out of weakness and greed. But he also suffered reprehensibly and has tried to recover from his trauma to help those that he once failed. He aided Sansa in her escape from Ramsay, saving her life. Their choice to spend this night, perhaps their last, with each other, speaks to the eternal power of what they have both suffered through at the hands of the same monster and their shared desire to prove that people can change. Well, Jason. Yes. When the time comes, you'll be down in the crypts. Yeah. They're the safest place to podcast. No place ever safer than the crypts. It's going to be great. (sighs) Through the archway, right over there. Yeah. And once you're below, safe within the confines, ahead of the impending battle, please assemble the conclave. Mm -hmm. Head to the Citadel to teach us everything we need to know about Winterfell. Winterfell, capital of the North, seat of House Stark since the Age of Heroes and site of numerous battles, as it surely will be again, 
in only a few short days. Winterfell is ancient, perhaps 8,000 years old, and legend has it that Bran the Builder, the first king of winter and founder of House Stark, raised the castle's earliest structures just as he raised the wall and perhaps Storm's End with the help of giants. Winterfell is huge, folks, huge, and it was built in phases over the course of many years. The ground under it, unlike other castles, wasn't leveled, leading many maesters to believe it may have once been a series of individual fortresses. Despite that hodgepodge construction plan, Winterfell provides a cohesive defense. And our heroes will need all of that to beat the army of the dead. Ned Stark famously said, 500 men could hold the castle against 10,000. Winterfell uses its size and scale to create a defense in depth. The castle, as it exists in the books, consists of two walls, an 80-foot-high outer wall and a 100-foot-high inner wall separated by a moat. Two main great gates, north and south, complete with stout gatehouses, safeguard an inner area encompassing several acres containing numerous freestanding buildings, training yards, and other open spaces. If invaders were to gain the outer wall, Winterfell's defenders could fall back to the tall inner wall and rain down projectiles on the invaders. A tunnel running inside the inner wall connects the two main gates, allowing soldiers to travel from gate to gate without exposing themselves. Should invaders manage to gain the inner yards or breach the gates, they'd find a tangle of buildings and open spaces known only to the defenders, leading to choke points, which the defenders could exploit. The Great Keep, constructed over hot springs, which keep it warm even in the deepest of winter, offers the last and most robust line of defense. It's essentially a castle within a castle surrounded by an inner wall. Defenders who fall back here have access to the armory via a covered bridge, which provides a sightline to the entire yard. The Great Hall, where the Lords of the North and the Vale have gathered to discuss strategy, where John was named King of the North, and where Brienne was just knighted, is in the Great Keep. Underneath Winterfell are its crypts. The crypts are entered through an iron door in the yard outside of the first keep, which is a large, round, drum-like tower topped by gargoyles and is thought to be the oldest standing part of the castle. This is disputed by some. A meister named Kennet asserts that the first men built square towers and round towers only appeared sometime after the arrival of the Andals on the continent. As noted... Winterfell is huge, spanning many acres, and the crypt contains numerous levels and is longer than Winterfell is itself. The lower one goes, the farther one goes back in time. It is said that down at the bottom in the dark, in the lowest levels of the vault, are the very first kings of winter. The show's version of Winterfell differs in important ways from the book version. The aerial shots of the castle from episode one, when Danny's dragons fly over, and the war council map from episode two— make it clear that the double wall of the books does not exist. We're just looking at a single wall now. Will it make a difference? Who knows? Both versions of the castle have been sacked numerous times throughout history, and Theon Greyjoy, in both the books and the show, famously captured it with only a handful of men. The location of the Godswood, three acres of virgin northern forest as it was in the time of the Children of the Forest, with an ancient weirwood tree at its heart, has been changed as well. The books describe Winterfell as being built around the godswood. In the show, it's as if the godswood is almost a separate part of the castle enclosed by a wall that is visibly smaller than the walls of Winterfell proper. Good news, you're only having the most valuable person left in the world there as bait for the Night King under those lower walls. That's fine. What will this all mean for our heroes in the Battle of Winterfell? Only time will tell. Mal, all my life I've known one goal. 
identifying nuggets, taking them back from the people who destroyed my podcast and almost destroyed yours. So let's head to the SEP to bathe in the light of the seven by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from this episode. Lightning round style, you go first. Number one. If you thought we were finished talking about Brienne, boy, were you wrong. <laughs> the name of this episode, Night of the Seven Kingdoms, is also the title of the compilation of novellas George R. R. Martin wrote about Sir Duncan yes. the Tall, Hedge Knight, and his squire, Egg. 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 The Targaryen <laughs> prince with a shaved head who would go on to become King Aegon V, the unlikely. Maester Aemon's brother. Jamie's Any Night Can Make a Night line is a massively important line from the novella, central to Dunk's arc, on his way to becoming, eventually, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard. Adding further significance, Dunk isn't just also very tall. He's actually, as George R. R. Martin has recently confirmed, mm-hmm. Brienne's ancestor. woo Number two. Hey, y'all, where's Melisandre? We haven't seen the Red Woman since she left Varys on Dragonstone with a cryptic message about returning to die in Westeros, this strange country. And, uh, like, let's take a look here. Yeah, she's running out of time to do it. But she told Arya they would meet again. Uh And surely they must. But Uh when? Will she arrive in time to swing the battle? Nissa Nissa action, anyone? Mm -hmm. Or will the loss to the Night King make the survivors so desperate that they're willing to welcome her back and stay execution. Number three. Davos does more than ladle soup in this episode. It's a little too important to be ladling soup. That's my note to the Northerners. Can we get somebody else? Davos should be doing other Davos stuff. Man of the people tapping back into his smuggling sustenance into Storm's End roots. I get you some soup. (laughs) (laughs) And he shares a moment of grief and reflection with Gilly in the form of a precocious young girl bearing a notable facial scar. The child is indisputably a proxy for Shireen Baratheon, who meant so much to Davos and Gilead alike. The two people Shireen taught to read are here talking to this reminder of her, thinking about the past and what they lost, but also mm-hmm. looking to the future and what they're trying to protect. As they speak to her, the instrumental version of the song that Shireen sang in season three, It's Always Somewhere Under the Sea, plays in the background. None of it is subtle, but it is a nice reminder of how many connections these characters have. Too bad. They sent Sweet Shireen 2.0 to the murder den. The crypts. I'm sure she'll turn the tide down there. (laughs) Number four, more on Jenny's song. Although not confirmed, one theory holds that Rhaegar Targaryen himself wrote the tune. He was born in the Summer Hall tragedy that killed Duncan after all, and he was a famed musician with a silver string harp. And as someone who invested heavily in Targaryen prophecies, too, he would have likely been drawn to the story of Jenny, the Woods Witch, and Summer Hall. No safer place to hide a harp than in the crypts. (laughs) Number five. There's a slight difference between Tormund's origin story in the show versus the books. In the drinking session inside the castle, he tells the group that he killed a giant, climbed into bed with his wife, and suckled at her teat for three Mm. months. In the book, he says he opened a giantess's stomach for warmth while caught in a winter storm and stuffed himself inside like Luke Skywalker in a dun-dun. And then in spring, the giant awoke and suckled Tormund at her teat for three months. In that same conversation in episode two, Tormund also mistakes Jamie's nickname, calling him King Killer instead of Kingslayer. King Killer. Is that an Easter egg reference to the King Killer Chronicles, a fantasy series starring a fellow red-haired warrior? Also unfinished? That was written by George R. R. Martin's friend, Patrick Rothfuss. Like a Song of Ice and Fire. That series also saw its last book come out in 2011. 
And fans are eagerly awaiting the next installment. Good luck! (laughs) (laughs) Number six. Tyrion tells Jamie that the Northerners are distrustful of Danny's cause because they remember what happened the last time Targaryens brought dragons north. But what the hell is he talking about? All previous recorded instances of Targaryens bringing their dragons north worked out fine. Really didn't hurt anybody during the Dance of the Dragons. Cregan Stark of Winterfell negotiated a successful alliance with the victorious Targaryen side, and King Jaehaerys and good Queen Alysanne journeyed north and were beloved by all. She got them the new gift. She got them more land for the Night's Watch. Everybody loved her. Was this just a throwaway line or what? They loved good Queen Alysanne. (laughs) It's really confusing. I don't know. They loved her. Wonderful woman. The only thing was, like, her dragon didn't want to fly beyond the wall, but, like, nobody noticed. Emo dragon. Yeah. They loved her. (laughs) (laughs) Number seven. What happened to Davos's pre-battle routine? Before the Battle of the Bastards in season six, he says, I can never sleep the night before a battle. Mm -hmm. And when asked what he does instead, he responds, I walk. Think and walk. Think and walk until I'm far enough away from camp that no one can hear me shitting my guts out. Yet on this night... While he also doesn't sleep, instead of walking away from camp to shit his guts out, he sits and drinks with friends. And here is a contribution from Zach Cram. Oh, God. On this holy Passover week. Maybe he had too much matzah and couldn't expel anything, even if he wanted to. <laughs> yeah, maybe he had too much matzah, Davos. <laughs> Jason, we have never had a conversation last this long without you insulting me. Not once. You want me to insult you? No. I want you to award this week's winner. Each episode, we're going to honor the person who played the game, advance their cause in some tangible way. This week, the winner of our champion's purse is... Brienne of Tarth. Oh, yeah. Found the courage of her convictions in that moment of intense pressure in the Great Hall to vouch for Jamie, And we're reminded when Brienne's word proves strong enough to convince Sansa how much people in Brienne's life trust her. She is unyielding in her service of honor and duty. We also learn that she'll be leading the left flank in battle, which is a big fucking deal. And we see how far Pod has come as a swordsman, which is a testament to his own commitment, certainly, but also to Brienne's training. Jamie asks for the honor of serving under her command during the battle, which is a truly unbelievable moment. We see, of course, that Tormund is still under her spell. Very, very far under the spell. She gets to partake in the most memorable sing-along in Thrones history. And she is knighted, becoming Sir Brienne of Tarth, the first female knight in the history of the realm, achieving her life's ambition. And she shared that moment with her love and her friend, and we should all be so lucky. So here's to Brienne of Tarth, a knight. Of the Seven Kingdoms! Brienne of Tarth! Well, friends, the Night King wants to erase this podcast. And we are its memory. As are Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you're as excited as we are to continue this journey. And that you'll join us again next week for lots of tears, probably, and Season 8, Episode 3. The sure-to-be-historic-and-devastating Battle of Winterfell. Until then, remember... We're here because of our minds. If we survive, we'll need them.
giant's pain. At the age of ten, I killed a giant. And then I crawled into bed with his wife. And do you know what happened? I suckled at her teeth for three months. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.